0: Welcome to Meaningful Journeys, a podcast about pilgrimage. I'm Dr. Heather Warfield, and I am passionate about connecting humanity through our shared quests for meaning. In this podcast, I'll be talking with pilgrims and pilgrimage scholars. I will have conversations with people impacted by both ancient and contemporary pilgrimage journeys, and we will also hear from people who live at these sacred sites. This program is supported in part by Antioch University, New England and the Meaningful Life Institute. In this episode of Meaningful Journeys, I talk with Daniel Olson about the book he co-edited with Max Costanja entitled Dark Tourism and Pilgrimage. Dr. Olson is an Associate Professor in the Geography Department at Brigham Young University and the author and editor of several publications on the topics of religious tourism and pilgrimage. I wanted to better understand the meaning of the terms dark tourism and dark pilgrimage. So we started our conversation with me asking about the definitions. Daniel, one of the first questions that I have for you has to do with what dark tourism or dark pilgrimage is uh, to begin with.
1: Uh, dark tourism is something that has been happening probably for centuries. It's just the terminology that we use uh, has come, to, come about in the past probably a couple of decades. Dark tourism is the idea that we travel or people travel to religious sites or not even religious sites, to places that are related to death and disaster, diseases, or human suffering has taken place. Much of early human history travel was about going to places where you would look at where you would engage in rituals where you it was about what happens life after death, what happens when I die. Um, it would be travel going to uh, ser- uh, battlefields, it would be travel uh, participating in ceremonies related to death and the cremation or burial of people. So dark tourism as traveled to sites of death and atrocity has really fascinated human beings for centuries. It's only now again in the past couple of decades where we've had the terminology to really separate this as a specific uh, type of mobility or motivation why people travel.
0: So up to the, the last couple of decades, then, I mean, it seems like, as you just said, all pilgrimage had... A quote unquote dark element in that uh, there was some type of memorial happening or a visit to place of death or a place where uh, something significant happened, which oftentimes included death. Um, so who do you know who coined the term, or is it, is it an English concept? Uh, be, because I, I guess it makes sense, this idea of light and dark in mm-hmm. English language, but I'm curious if there are other ways of viewing this as well.
1: I'm not, ne- I'm not necessarily uh, informed on the actual origin of the term. The term tourism goes back a few centuries the idea of a tour or a trip that goes, you start from point A to point B and go back again. Um, the etymology doesn't concern me as much as, uh, I think what we tend to do as, as academics is we find a topic and then we have to find boundaries for what it is we want to study. Some, we focus a lot on definitions and what, is, what we study and what we do not study. So take, for example, my area of interest, religious tourism. What's religious tourism and what's not religious tourism? So dark tourism is just a term that we use to describe certain places, certain types of motivations, why people travel. The whole tourism field is about segmentation. It's about trying to figure out as an academic where's my research field, where's my best fit, where can, I, where can I focus on a topic that has meaning to me but also makes sense and how do we organize the world and why people travel. So again, I think dark tourism is more of a term just to describe the motivations of people, a certain group of people, why they travel to certain sites for certain reasons. So again, the etymology would be interesting, but it really is just how do we categorize human beings and travel and motivations from place to place?
0: So what what does motivate people uh, to go pla- to go to places that are uh, dark or to undertake journeys that are dark pilgrimages?
1: I think there are a, few, are a couple of reasons why people go. There are people that just go because they're interested in seeing people suffer. Uh, there's a there's a group of people that, uh, that like to go around and see things burn. And part of that is they go to these sites where atrocities took place. Mass graves, for example, going to Auschwitz, uh, not necessarily for learning or education, but just to to see these places where people have have suffered. A lot of people though, they travel in part because they want to they want to find meaning in life. And sometimes we find meaning in the deaths of others and and question why did people struggle in the world? Why does this happen to them and not me? Or in some cases, why did this happen to me? And I'm going back to the site where this took place to try and find some sort of meaning in the world. Again, we try to we try to figure out the purpose of life, why we're here, where we're going. And sometimes by engaging with death and atrocity, we really just try to f- find out who I am and what's my personal identity and how do I associate and find meaning in this world based upon what I or other people have suffered.
0: Can you give us some examples for people who are listening, uh, maybe uh, two or three examples of sites that are dark uh, tourism or dark pilgrimage sites? hmm
1: uh, we have a few examples in the book *Dark Tourism and Pilgrimage*, which I edited with Maximiliano, Maximiliano Uh One of the, the case studies is uh, Auschwitz, or looking at concentration camps where people will will travel here to not necessarily commemorate, but to try and get a sense of why this particular event occurred, or why were people killed because of the color of their skin, or or because of their ethnic background. Uh, in this particular chapter, there was a qu- there was a question about interpretation. So when people go to these sites, what how should they act at Auschwitz, for example? How should death and suffering be interpreted? Now, Philip Stone, out of the UK, has done a lot of work on dark tourism, and he's looked at diff- at a spectrum of dark tourism sites. You have sites like theme parks that you know that are related to to suffering and horror. Uh, you have wax museums for mass murderers, which are more people go and they want the shock and awe value. But then you also have places like Auschwitz, which are almost sacred sites, where people will go, they will engage with the site, they will want to learn the stories, the meanings b- behind why these atrocities happened. Who were the people? What were, what were their lives like? Why were they there? What did they suffer? And then what are the lessons that we can learn when it comes to how not to see these things happen again in humanity. So I think we do have a bit of a spectrum going on here, but Auschwitz is definitely an example. Uh, There were other examples. The one that my chapter that I I did with Scott Esplin here at Brigham Young University was taking a look at a site of martyrdom where the prophet Joseph Smith, who was the first prophet for the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day saints, was persecuted and eventually killed by a mob for his particular beliefs members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, even though they do not have a formal pilgrimage theology, they do travel to this particular site in Carthage, Illinois, to remember and to commemorate his death. They want to go and see the place where this death actually occurred, the room that he was in, the bullet hole that is still found in the door where someone shot through the door and and hit uh, his brother, uh, and the window where he jumped out of as he, was, as he was shot and then fell to his particular death, this site has meaning and it grounds the history. It makes history real rather than learning about the Joseph Smith in, 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 in religious books uh, or in mm-hmm. history books. Mm-hmm. They actually want to go to the place where this happened. It's more of an emotional connection that takes place when you get to go to a place that's meaningful to you, whether it is because of your ethnicity or your religious background or your heritage. These are two examples that kind of stick out in my mind as I kind of reflect upon the book and some of the case studies that were given.
0: In the example that you just gave about uh, related to Joseph Smith, what are the types of activities or rituals that happen when people visit these this particular site?
1: I don't know. If there's a ritual necessarily in the case of Carthage, Illinois. It's Carthage, Illinois is part of what we call the Mormon Trail. It's kind of the trek from Palmyra to New York, where the, where the church was first established working its way to the west, to Nauvoo, Illinois, then Carthage, Illinois, where the Prophet Joseph Smith died, and then how members of the church eventually moved into Indian territory, as it was called at the time, and moved to Salt Lake City, Utah. But it becomes one of those must-see attractions if you are kind of doing the trek from Palmyra all the way to Salt Lake City. If you haven't gone to Carthage jail, then you really haven't experienced the true history of the church and its early beginnings. In the same way that if you don't go to Auschwitz, but you're going to other Holocaust sites, you haven't been to the site, they really become must-see attractions if you're interested in dark tourism and suffering. There are certain places that you just need to show up at in Carthage and ends up being one of those. There isn't really a ritual that's involved. People will wait in line. They'll kind of um, go to the visitor center and get a video, watch a video. They'll then go up this, into the jail uh, which, that's been reconstructed. You'll go up the stairs, you go to the site. But there's nothing in terms of ritual, like we would think in terms of religion. But there is a sense of sacredness. There's a quietness. There's a certain way that you're expected to act when, to, when you go to this particular site. You don't let your kids run around. This is holy ground on which member of the church are, are stepping on. And this is the way that it's interpreted. It's a holy site uh, that a martyrdom took place of, of an important figure in not just church, church history, but American history. And so people need to act in a certain way. That's probably where that more ritualistic, uh, I think idea comes in. Just the way you treat the place and the way you act becomes part of that ritual.
0: Have you uh, been to this site yourself?
1: I have been to this site myself. I am a member of that particular faith. I've been there a couple of times. And maybe it's because I'm I'm an insider, but I do feel a sense of place when it comes to, this is part of my religious heritage. This is a part of who I am, what it means to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The fact that we have a religious founder who just didn't start a church, but he died for what he believed in and what he preached. Being in place... This, is, this happens among, I think, all faiths, whether it's dark tourism or it's religious pilgrimage. And I think, again, there's a really tight tie between the two, especially when it comes to trying to find your, your place in the world.
0: Yeah, what so, happened with, uh, for you? Um, can you talk more about what that was like um, in terms of how you prepared to go? Was it something intentional? Was it part of a bigger journey along the Mormon Trail? Um, I'd like to hear more about your own experience um, with, with the, the site, but also how, what it meant to you in the context of your own identity.
1: Thank you. So when you grow up as a member of a faith, you're trying to not just understand doctrine, but where things took place are really important. That's why a lot of, a lot of Christians, for example, will want to travel to the Holy Land. They want to walk where Jesus walked. In the case of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we don't really have theologians in our church. We have historians that act as theologians because we want to demonstrate to our youth and to the upcoming generations that God had a hand in the history of the creation and the growth of the church. And one way to do that is to commemorate sites where revelations were given to the prophet Joseph Smith or where certain events occurred that were important to the growth and the history of the faith. And so the the church actually has a historical sites division, and they spend a lot of their time purchasing and reconstructing and restoring different sites related to the history of the faith. So one of the things that some parents uh, do in the church is they take their children, they start in Palmyra, and they go to the beginnings, the, the cradle of, of the beginnings of the church. And they worked their way throughout church history in a very linear manner uh, and historical manner down to Salt Lake City. My dad took myself and my brother and my my sister on this particular trek or quasi pilgrimage when I was 15 years old. So I Palmyra, worked her way down to Nauvoo, and then drove over to Salt Lake City, Utah. And so I wasn't necessarily prepared for this. This wasn't something... As a young teenager, where I was reading the history and reading this, the scriptures and and trying to understand, I just kind of showed up. Um, my dad just brought me here and said, this is the place that we commemorate as members of the church, as being the martyrdom of the prophet Joseph Smith. So I wasn't necessarily prepared, but I, I do remember learning about it in Sunday school and other, other church classes about what happened in this particular location. So again, it's one thing to read about it. It's another thing to walk up the stairs where the mob ran. It's another thing to go into the room where Joseph Smith and the other three um, men who were with him were trying to bar the door. And hearing the story and seeing the video that was created kind of reconstructing all of this happening. And the fact that I believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet and that this is a place where a prophet of God died had real meaning to me. For other people that are not members of the faith that would go through, they'd say this is an interesting historical reconstruction. This is an interesting story that was told, but it's not the same when you're an insider. It's not the same when you're a believer and you really feel that the events that occurred here uh, represent that a prophet was sealing his testimony with his blood, that this restoration of the faith is, uh, is, is, um, uh, really did occur. And so for me, at least, it was, it was touching. It was spiritual. It was spiritual. It was educational at the same time I was learning things about this story that I didn't that I wasn't reading in the history books I was there in place and being in place really does have an emotional draw and attachment that makes the experience different from just reading about World War II reading about concentration camps being there in person brings a whole new level of understanding and emotional experience to going to these sites
0: Did you draw on this experience uh, when you were uh, thinking about your your edited text, uh, Dark Tourism and Pilgrimage?
1: I don't know if I necessarily draw upon the emotional side of the experience. We were interested in this chapter looking at kind of the evolution of this site, how it became a pilgrimage site, and again, Historically, this site has not really been viewed by members of the church as a dark tourism site, even though it is about a site of martyrdom. It's about bringing this new terminology and trying to see the the evolution of and the interpretation of how this site was represented to members and non-members of the faith regarding death and meaning and how it related to the history of the church and how it can be a faith-promoting experience to members of that particular faith. I thought about it as we wrote this, but we didn't really go in and do interviews with people looking at their experiences. That would be another step. And there were a couple of chapters that did take a look at people's experiences. For the most part, though, the the book really focused on the development of these sites, how they're interpreted to visitors. That's easier to do than being at the site and trying to ask people their emotional experiences while they're in the state of having those emotional experiences. Uh, that's really difficult to get at. And all our research has really been done on emotional experiences, maybe after the fact, when there's been a bit of delay or time when you lose some of that recall. But to, to deal with someone at Auschwitz and ask them questions while they're in a certain emotional state, it actually detracts from their experiences. So it's really difficult to write about experiences unless you're getting it in real time. But then again, you're then damaging the experience that they're having. So not too much work has been done on that. Our book focuses more on some interpretational, theoretical interpretational types of ideas. That's kind of what we were focusing on for our book.
0: So how did you uh, make the, the? Yeah, um, I'm aware of your publications in tourism and, and as a geographer as well. How did you make the connection then um, from, the geography and tourism space to this dark space. Mm-hmm. And and then I, I guess the second question is, it seems like this book was pivotal for you and also linking you to the pilgrimage space.
1: Yeah. So uh, Noga Collins Kreiner, a researcher at the University of Haifa in 2016, published a paper looking at this interconnection between dark tourism and pilgrimage. And again, this idea that historically people have traveled for, uh, two, two sites of atrocity have uh, death, questions about death and light, meaning of life through religious sites. And I thought that was a really interesting connection to make. I've thought about it previously, but this is the first time it was really articulated to me. And as I started to research this I, this idea, this interconnection between dark tourism and, pilgr- and pilgrimage, I realized that there's really not a lot written on this topic. There's been a lot written on dark tourism, but no one's really used the term pilgrimage and kind of the religious ideas behind travel and death that we would have expected otherwise. And that was really the motivation for this book, trying to figure out, well, why is it that people aren't talking about death in ritual or in religious terminology? uh, When really that's that's the basis of why we see dark tourism today, at least historically in the motivations for travel. So that's why I wanted to kind of work through this book. One of the interesting things about this book is we put out a general call for papers. Usually when I edit a book, I, I've already selected the people that I want to write. I've approached them. They've given me their abstracts. But in this sense, we just said, I'm curious to see how wide of a net we can get. And so we put out a general call for papers in a number of different places. And we got a very eclectic book. We have people writing from English. We have people from anthropology, from sociology, from religious studies, Uh, from experience design. We just got this really, a lot of people that said, these are really interesting connections and I can see how pilgrimage and dark tourism fits within my own disciplinary silo. So I was actually very pleased with the book. We didn't get just geographers or just anthropologists that were doing this. We got people from a wide range of disciplinary backgrounds to write on this. And that's why I think this book is really interesting because This is not a book meant to be an end-all and be-all book. This is a definitive answer on the connections between dark tourism and pilgrimage. But it's so eclectic that it's accessible to people from all all different disciplinary backgrounds. I actually have a a nephew who is reading the book right now, who is really interested uh, in a couple of the chapters. One of the chapters being the suicide forest in Japan. Uh, And so he's reading this, and if he's reading this and he's in grade 11, this tells me this is not just accessible in terms of being interdisciplinary, but the writing is at a level where it's accessible, not just to academics, but to anyone who wants to pick it up and learn more about these interconnections between dark tourism and pilgrimage. So one
0: of the concepts that you talk about in the book is this idea of tourist gaze uh, which is really interesting to me and I it's 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 new I guess in the way that I'm thinking about it Uh, and I'm curious about your thoughts about how we look how how do we as humans look upon the suffering of others uh, I mean in I mean, there's almost in some ways a consumeristic focus for some sites um, that are dark tourism or pilgrimage sites. And and what does that mean? What does it mean to be uh, a tourist in, in these sites?
1: So the idea of the tourist gaze is the idea in tourism studies. That when people travel, especially to places that are very different from what they're used to or from where they come from, for example, I go from the United States, I'm going somewhere in Africa. We're not necessarily interested in engaging at a local level and really understanding the people living the life that they live. What we want to do is we want to get a very quick snippet of that difference. The idea of tourist gaze is kind of like we you're in a bus. And we drive by, and we say, "Oh, look at the people! Look at their different how they're different." As we are looking through the window, we're gazing at them, but we don't necessarily want to interact with them. A lot of times, when we deal with death and suffering, especially if we've had death and suffering in our life, or if we've had events occur in our life that where this event I'm going to go in and look at or be a tour, take a tour of, if it's too close to home. We don't necessarily want to engage. We want to kind of glance and look and say, okay, that's kind of the history, but I don't want to get too emotionally involved with what was taking place there. Sometimes when we engage with death, I mean, I have a, 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 my wife's uh, sister is someone that won't go to funerals. She just doesn't want to be engaged that closely with death. She'll feel sorrowful that someone died, you know, passing her regards, but don't make me go to a funeral, and sometimes I think a lot of people deal with death that way. It's uh, evidence of their own mortality. They, they, so if they go to a site like Auschwitz, they'll say, I kind of want to get the, the brief history, but I don't want to feel anything when I go because it hits too home to me. A lot of dark tourism sites these days are now being designed to evoke some sort of emotion, to get people past the gaze or kind of the hands-off, mind, mindless okay, so people died here and that's too bad. And, uh, you know, this is the place that happened. I'm moving on. They actually want people to feel things. They want to educate people in a way where they walk away saying this was pretty bad. What happened here? And I, I don't want to see this happen again. So what can I do to make a difference where I am? So that seems to be where a lot of the movement is when it comes to interpretation, uh, when it comes to engaging with these sites it go, it's, it's not just, I'm looking at a site saying, no, this is terrible. Going to where the Prophet Joseph Smith died and saying, oh, someone died here, that's tragic and moving on. But what actually happened? What does this mean to people? What does this mean to me? How does it help me to reflect upon death? And what am I willing to die for? And then therefore making a life change. So I think that's really how, pe- how people are starting to interact with these sites more and more. Uh, one example from our textbook, from the, the, the book that we published, where we have people that don't want to engage with dark tourism. In many sites in Eastern Europe after World War II, you have these communist governments that are formed, and they didn't like dissent. And they would take large groups of people that would dissent, take them into the forests and mass and mass murder them and bury them in mass graves. So in, in one of our chapters, um, the author was talking about how in many Eastern European countries, and she focused on one in particular, that they don't actually want to market dark tourism. They don't wanna use the term. They don't want to bring people in to look at these mass graves they're still finding because it's too fresh. The wound is too new. And so they haven't had a chance to reconcile with this, but yet there are people that come and say, show me the mass graves. I wanna see the mass graves. I think this would be really cool to see. And that's not really the tone that they're going for when it comes to dark tourism sites sometimes dark tourism sites, you need to let them exist for a while and, and let people get over the traumatic effects of these events. Uh, And so, and so that was really interesting to me, at least when I think of, oh, this is a place of atrocity, make it a tourism site, people are going to come and it's part of the overall tourism market that you're trying to bring people in, gives them something else to do. But those, people at these sites sometimes say give us 20 or 30 years to kind of work through this trauma and then we can start discussing whether or not we want to promote this aspect of our history.
0: In in terms of engagement, uh, when many people uh, are now engaging in new ways with sites and along journeys uh, because of the use of cell phones or other types of technology, so people are taking selfies for example, um, at at some of these uh, places of, of mass atrocity. And I'm curious about how uh, how that changes the, the dynamic for the person experiencing the site uh, or what your work uh, can tell us about even the motivations for these types of uh, activities, um, specifically with selfies.
1: You know, it, it, that's a difficult question to answer because people show up to the same site with totally different motivations. Uh, I've seen, for example, people come to a religious site and they're playing volleyball on the front lawn of the cathedral because they don't really, they see this as maybe a sacred site or at least a heritage attraction, but they don't see it as sacred space. For many people, when they travel to dark tourism sites, again, it's sacred space to them, but not everyone who comes are motivated by the fact they want to come and they want to learn and be educated A lot of people just happen to see a site and say, this is a good place to stop, maybe have some lunch and to go and do things um, in a more leisure oriented um, style. So I think, again, there are these shades, as Philip Stone says to these dark tourism sites. Some dark tourism sites are designed specifically for play, uh, for educational purposes, or maybe have a, especially with Halloween around the corner, you'll you'll have these haunted forests, right? They are associated with death and atrocity and mass murderers and that sort of thing or you yeah, have the wax museum for mass murderers but they're designed as places for play but then you have people that will go there and actually have some sort of experience that is life altering because uh, they make them think about their own mortality but then you have sites on the other end of the spectrum that are like Auschwitz or sites of martyrdom where there are sacred places in a real real sense and they're designed to evoke those kind of religious or spiritual experiences, but people will come and their motivation is not to experience that, but to just have a good time. So it's a real hard question. And again, we don't really have a lot of data. We don't have a lot of research that's been done in this area. We know that we have some what we might call serious tourists, those that are interested in education, those that want to learn and want to feel and want to experience that will go to, the, to a lot of these sites that are designed specifically to, um, for those type of emotive experiences. So I'm not really sure, honestly, how to answer that question. There's just so much we don't know about motivations. And even if you're motivated by, by, by a depth, you want to learn more about a site, you want to learn more, have deeper experiences, you may end up just playing just because of the, the way that a site is designed, the way that the site is interpreted, maybe doesn't give you the depth you want. Sorry, it seems like a cop out in that sense, but
0: one of the no, no, no. Um, One of the things that strikes me uh, in the the examples that you've given is the importance of, uh, I guess, the official like uh, entities that manage these sites and how uh, the experience is structured uh, before someone even gets to the site. And so, I'm curious about your thoughts around the management part of this, uh, and and the priorities of the official entities uh, who manage these sites.
1: If you have a site on the lighter end of the spectrum that is interested in making money and entertainment, then of course they're going to cater to and attract a certain element of of tourists that wants something a bit more lighter, where where dark tourism, death atrocity, becomes a, a background for fun and play. But then you also have groups that, are, that take a more serious tone where it's about site preservation, it, but it's not just about site preservation and conservation, it's about telling a story and telling a story that's gonna affect future generations. So they say, here's a site of atrocity, here's a site where death took place, like Auschwitz. And in c- learning the story of this site, what we want you to do is to walk away saying what can i do personally to make sure that in my particular situation or society that this doesn't happen again and so they 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 create they manage these sites and interpret them in a way where you just don't go away saying that was an interesting story but we want to change people the way they understand difference the way they understand other human beings the way that they associate politically at different scales and what can we do to ensure that the events of this place don't take place? Again, we don't want to have a second or third Auschwitz in the next 50 to 100 years. We, what can we do in our society to find peace, to f- make, make people better? How do we help people to interact with others better? And so a lot of these organizations, that's what they do. They, they manage these sites in a way where it's about creating peace and better relationships between people. How do we learn from the past to make our presence not revert back to that particular past?
0: I mean, I, conceptually that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and I'm wondering if you're aware of any, uh, any, research on this idea of value changes or increasing tolerance or increasing empathy? I mean, what do we know about the long-lasting impact of visiting a site uh, such as a concentration camp?
1: To be honest, probably nothing. Part of the issue, again, is when we do research looking at experiences, it's usually short-term, either right after they left the site, or I contact you a couple months later to get a sense of what you're feeling. There have really not been any longitudinal studies where we're looking at five, 10, 15 year increments down the road. So that's very difficult. I mean, I remember many years going to Jerusalem and going to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, which is purported by, by Christian groups to be the place where Jesus Christ suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane as a Christian and someone that has a belief in Jesus Christ, that really hit home to me. I, I had experiences there that I would consider to be religious or spiritual. And, but no one's ever asked me 20 years later, what's the effect that's had on you and how has it changed your life? Anecdotally, we can talk about this, but no one's ever done that longitudinal research. So we know that short term that people are affected by this. There is one chapter in the book here, Um, that talks about the experiences in China uh, when there was a large earthquake a number of years ago. And people were asked at the site why they came, but also what they were experiencing and how they thought that this this experience would change their life. So we know kind of that immediate recall. I've had this experience. I think this is how it's going to change me. But we don't know 10 months, a year, 10 years down the road, how long that experience actually stayed with them. And if it did make these lifelong life altering changes. So that's an area of research that we need to do more work in the long-term effects of this, but it's just like any other, other experience. Even if you buy a souvenir after a couple of years, you kind of remember a little bit, but did it actually change your value system? Did it change the way you live day to day? Probably the answer is not really life is a bunch of accumulative experiences and this might be an important experience but one of many life experiences that changes who you are and how you act over time so whether longitudinal research will really get to this or not I mean if I'm being interviewed by by a member of my faith saying did your experience at Carthage jail impact you I'm going to say absolutely it did because it depends on who's asking right so that's another, another issue as well. Um, are you part of the group that is being commemorated, this death and atrocity is being commemorated about, or are you an outsider? And then who's, who's asking what questions you ask? So the answer to your question, we don't know. I think a lot more work could be done, but even if you're asking five, 10, 20 years down the road, people will say, sure, it had an impact, but over time, I think that impact lessens. And that's what studies have shown just in terms of experiences in general. The further away the experience is that you're asking about, the less impactful it seems because it's not, you see the initial course correction you might make, or I want to think differently about this. But then over time, there's so many other experiences that are there that it really, really waters down that initial experience that you've had.
0: So you've piqued my interest uh, about your trip to Jerusalem. I want to hear about what you, I mean, you said that, uh, no one has ever asked you about the long-term impact of that. And i w I'm curious, I would like to know what the long-term impact of visiting either the garden of Gethsemane or the, uh, church of the Holy Sepulchre, what impact did that have on you up to current day?
1: Well, when I write my autobiography, I'll let you know. Uh, you know, now you've asked the question, it's kind of made me think. I'm trying to remember all the places I went to. I remember, I mean, for, for many Christians, going to the Holy Land is a once-in-a-lifetime once in opportunity. It's a lot of money to go for many people. I had an opportunity because there was a conference that was being held in Jerusalem on religious, and, religious tourism and heritage, which is my area of, ex, of interest. And so I got an opportunity to go. My, my parents, actually, I was just finishing my Ph.D., starting my first job, not having a lot of money as, you know, first job for academics. Usually that's what it entails. And I, I got an opportunity to go, my parents paid my way. And I, for that, I'm all, I'm going to be eternally grateful for that. I just got an opportunity to learn about my faith in Jesus Christ. I got an opportunity to learn about Jesus himself. It's, it's one thing to sit in Sunday school or to read the new Testament And to say he went to Galilee and he went here, and he did this and had this experience and he taught this here. But again, there's something about being in the places where events took place, whether it is um, you go to Williamsburg and you're looking at the Civil War and seeing it being reenacted or going to Jerusalem and doing, doing the, the ways of the cross where, and during his last days, he went from this place to this place and he had this experience. And this is where he was crucified. And this is where he was resurrected. This is where he suffered. There's something about, there's a sense of place that is derived from being in the locations where history took place or religious events took place. And I have found for me that as I have reflected right now, but also throughout my life, having been to Jerusalem, I think my faith has been solidified. I think that the fact that I was in those locations, whether it was where the prophet Joseph Smith was, where he was martyred or where the savior was crucified or suffered for the sins of the world in Gethsemane, being at the rock where it's purported that he was, whether or not that that's actually the place, the fact that I was in the general area, it really strengthened my testimony It strengthened my faith in Jesus Christ that this became more real to me. It wasn't just, he wasn't just some abstract figure that I read about in a book. I actually got to go to the places where he suffered, where he bled, where he died. And that for me has created a pretty strong foundation for my faith in Jesus Christ. I think might still have faith, but it wouldn't be as strong or as personal to me uh, if I hadn't gone. Again, studies have shown that being in the geographical locations are really, really important. And in this case, it was about the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which gives Christianity as well as myself hope in the fact that there are answers to why we are here and where we're going and that this life is just a blip in our eternal progression. So that's kind of how I reflect upon that. Maybe that's too religious. Maybe that's too Christian for some people. But for people of faith or if I am a Jew and I'm going to Auschwitz, this is going to deepen my understanding of my ethnic identity, of who I am, where do my people come from, and, and how do we proceed from here to make sure this never happens again. There's a depth that comes geographically from being in those locations. And that's why I think, and I've argued in a, in a paper that's coming out soon, that religious tourism... And maybe even by extension, dark tourism is going to be one of the first tourism niche markets to rebound, because while you can worship at home and you can, you know, and there are many cemetery, you know, deaths and uh, you can't go to the cemetery because of COVID. One of the first things people are going to want to do is go back to these places of meaning, not necessarily lying on a beach, which may have meaning for some people, but what are the places that affect me personally? The places that give me a depth of understanding about who I am, and so I think at least domestically, if not internationally, dark tourism, religious tourism, the places of meaning are the are the types of tour tourism that's going to really um, pick up right after all this COVID nonsense is taken care of.
0: I agree. I I think it's definitely a. Uh, we're going to see a very interesting time ahead for sure with the way people travel and what they're, what they are, uh, what the, what's motivating them to travel and what they're going to or towards. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you've, you have definitely shown the, the personal connection that you have with the, with the topic of dark tourism and pilgrimage. And I'm curious uh, to hear about what's exciting to you personally uh, about this area, uh, kind of niche area of study, and what are you excited about from an academic standpoint?
1: I've mentioned this earlier, but what I'm excited about this particular niche area of tourism is just that so you can go in so many directions with, with this particular topic. I'm sitting here looking at the book. It's interesting, when you edit a book, you do all the editing and you slave over this and then you submit it to the editor and you never think about it again. You submit, I submit it to cabbie and I don't think about it again because I've just put so much of my heart and soul into all this editing in this book done that you're just kind of tired after a while, to be honest. Um, I don't know if, what books you've edited, but I imagine it's kind of the same thing where the book's done, it's off to the publisher, like, oh, I don't know if I ever want to see that again. But in my review of of looking at the topics here, we're looking at the history and evolution of dark tourism and pilgrimage. We're looking at the role of terrorism in the creation of dark tourism sites. We're looking at the development of dark tourism in Eastern Europe, in Slovenia and Bulgaria, and the use of European cemeteries. We're looking at Uh, The case uh, of of, uh, a dark tourism site in Cambodia. We're in Malta right now in Chapter 9 looking at St. John's Co-Cathedral, how everything, all the symbols are death and skeletons and and darkness. We're looking at the suicide force. We're looking at pioneer reenactments where where youth reenact uh, Mormon pioneers. Uh, and their their treks taking on the name of a pioneer that walked the trail. In essence, we're reenacting for the dead. We're looking at post-disaster ruins. We're looking at museums, Indigenous museums in particular, and how Indigenous populations have been, and, and their takeover by Europeans has been depicted in museums. We've looked at experiential learning, the creation of civil rights pilgrimages, looking at Emmett Till's casket, uh, in the Smithsonian, uh, looking at going back to Kunta kita Island uh, in, in Africa um, because of the Roots, uh, because of the Roots uh, uh, series and people going back to gone to the Gambia, trying to find their particular ancestry uh, through, through heritage and genealogy and slavery. We're looking at hip hop and its history in the Bronx and, and, and dark tourism. We're looking at the experience designs in Holocaust museums. We have Stephen Newton who, has, uh, based, who basically reflects upon his own life and events in his life, whether it's going to Hiroshima or 9-11. He was living right there when it happened or even having a heart attack and how this has led him to reflect upon his own life's experiences through dark tourism, but also through his journeys with death as well. There's so much autobiographical, there's, there's so many things that you can talk about with dark tourism. It's just, it's such a newer field. While we have a Palgrave, Palgrave handbook on relig- dark tourism and we have all sorts of theories about dark tourism. There's just so much we can go for, we can study. And I just wanted to use this book as a, as a springboard onto a much broader platform to say, if we combine these elements of ritual and religion what other avenues does this allow us to explore? And as I've just kind of listed off here very quickly, there are so many ways in which we can explore these and this interface between dark tourism and pilgrimage. This is a very ripe field, not just in terms of developing for tourism in terms of different sites and attractions that destinations can create and try and make money off of, but what are some of the more personal, the more communal aspects of this that we can try to understand at a deeper level. And my hope is, and Max's hope is, or my, co-ed, my co-editor, we hope that this is an, an avenue that people can look at to say there's this tight connection between dark tourism and pilgrimage, but it also leads to a lot of other questions, some of those questions you've been asking today.
0: So where can we find the book? It's published by CABBY. Yes, it uh, is. And, and I've seen it on Amazon. Are there other places we can find it?
1: Barnes and Noble. I imagine that if you go to any major bookseller that you're going to be able to find it, you can get an e-version of it. You can get the hard copy. What Cabbie is telling me and what they're finding with all the books they're publishing. And in fact, most publishers these days, what they're finding is that the hardcovers are not selling as well as e-versions of the books everyone seems to be going for the PDF version. And that's of course going to be the cheaper version. So those are are some places that you can go to get the book. Again, I think this book is fairly accessible. I edited probably about 70 to 80% of the text myself. And I like to write in a way that's a bit more accessible. So we're hoping that anyone, whether you have a passing interest or very deep interest in this topic, can pick up the book. And you're going to find, because it's so eclectic, you're going to find a topic in here, a case study, a theory that is going to be of interest to you. So again, highly encourage you to pick up this book. Uh, So just a lot of really interesting phenomenon that we find in this book related to the dark tourism and pilgrimage areas of research.
0: I think... The book has certainly uh, appealed to to those of us who are working in pilgrimage studies as well as tourism, heritage studies, but it's also, as you said, accessible, and, and I think that a person who just has a their curiosity has piqued about the topic uh would really benefit in uh, taking a look at it because the chapters are so diverse as you mentioned and it really does provide a nice overview of what dark tourism and pilgrimage is uh and uh in a way that I think um is is really interesting.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. I know my parents sometimes when I send them things I've published or I've written They say, oh, I can kind of understand this a little bit. And that's not what I wanted with this book. I wanted this book where people that have no knowledge about any of this can pick it up and say, I find this really interesting and I understand what they're saying. We try to take out a lot of the jargon. The first chapter has a bit of jargon in it just because the book is an academic book. But we tried to go through these chapters and edit them in a way where they're very accessible to people. And I found that people who have read this book have come back to me and said, I I understand the concepts. They're accessible, they're understandable to me. So we wanted to reach not just an academic audience, but a more broad, popular audience with this. And hopefully, just based on anecdotal evidence, it seems like we've done this and we're hoping that we'll be able to see this in the future where people will say, I got your book and I read it and I've learned a lot about myself. In this because at the end of the day all of us are going to die we're going to suffer in this life and other people have suffered And this book talks about how people have suffered how we commemorate that suffering and hopefully it leads people to start question thinking about well what is what why am I here what is my life what am I supposed to do in this life because I'm gonna have to deal with these this atrocity deal with suffering and deal with death not just personally, but with other people I care about and even people I don't care about more communally. How do we deal with this? And I hope that this is, again, an introduction, a starting off point for that bringing the religious into the dark tourism literature.
0: I am also aware of a new book that you have that has just been published. And uh, and while that's not the topic of this podcast, there is some uh, connection between the book we're talking about today and your new book. And so, uh, I'd love to just hear very, very briefly, uh, like a minute synopsis about what the what your new book is about.
1: Thank you for asking about this. This is another book published by Cabby by myself and also my my co-editor Kieran Shindy out of Australia we have a new book that just came out last week called religious tourism and the environment, where we were looking at the interface between people who travel and the impacts that they have on both the natural and the human built environment. As part of this particular book, we do have one chapter in particular that has a nice, nice uh, tie here where the, the, uh, the authors of this chapter were looking at Italy and how in 2016, 17, there were a number of earthquakes. Uh, that shook many of the foundations of the church buildings and, and also residential buildings in the central part of Italy. And so they spend a lot of time talking about how do we rebuild these religious buildings and encourage tourism to come back again. But anyone who's ever lived through an earthquake knows that these are, those are pretty traumatic, especially when there's a loss of livelihood. I can't live in my home anymore. And the central place in many of these, in these villages in the mountains, the church, uh, are is no longer functional anymore, and so this kind of made a little bit of a paradigm shift for them in terms of how do, how do we reconstruct our identity when our religious identity in the form of this material culture isn't necessarily viable anymore. Uh, we have other other topics looking at uh, looking at how religions view the environment, but then how when you go on a pilgrimage or a religious tour. Um, what your religious say how you should treat the environment and how pilgrims actually treat the environment are very two different things pilgrimage as 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 nice as it seems isn't environmentally friendly and so we dealt with uh, wrestled with this a lot in terms of the impacts on the built environment the natural environment Uh, so that's kind of the plug for that particular book and i appreciate letting me to mention it i guess that's another podcast at some point
0: You can find Daniel's and Max's book, Dark Tourism and Pilgrimage, online at many outlets. In addition, Daniel's other books on the topics of religious tourism and pilgrimage can be found online, and his email address is dholsen O-L-S-E-N, at byu.edu. You've just heard Dark Tourism and Pilgrimage, hosted by Dr. Heather Warfield and produced by Jonah Bayer. Copyright 2021, all rights reserved. Thank you for listening to Meaningful Journeys. This program is supported in part by Antioch University, New England and the Meaningful Life Institute. We would love to connect with you on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter and Facebook, or by email info at meaningfuljourneys.net or our website, www.meaningfuljourneys.net. We hope you will join us next time on our shared quest for meaning as we connect humanity one step at a time